What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the pod. Today's episode is a motivational one. It's about heartbreak and rock and roll. It's the story of a man who strives for excellence by constantly putting himself in difficult, impossible situations to become stronger. It's the message of how sometimes the best opportunities in life come if you just take the initiative to get off the couch and walk out that door. Scott Sellers is a rocker, drummer, successful entrepreneur, Ironman, and endurance athlete. He's someone I personally look to for personal motivation. This is a good one, so strap in. As always, if you make it to the end, please share. We can't grow without your support. Let's rock and roll. Oh, I got the countdown. It's the final countdown. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting. Um, <laughs> I've had a lot of people come in now and do a conversation and... Everyone has said the same thing at the end. Like, thank you for the experience, which yeah. is a really odd thing to say. It's a compliment. Yeah. I mean, I think people kind of zone in. And the word I've gotten a lot is that it's been therapeutic. You know, because you get <laughs> thank to you for being a therapist. Yeah. I'm, I'm like giving stuff. out free yeah. therapy here Yeah, uh, because it gives you an, an opportunity to kind of like zone in on your thoughts, uh, block out the entire world and sometimes reflect. You know, I do that a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, podcast notwithstanding. Yeah. And I think that is therapeutic. It's very good. I just did my quiet trip mm -hmm. and it's very odd being alone by yourself for two days with no TV, no, no noise, no talking. Where'd you do it? Uh, up in North Georgia, a place okay. called Julep Farm. And you just got a cabin or? It's a, it's a nice house, but mm -hmm. it's a little small, little two bedroom house. And, uh, um, it's just out in the middle of nowhere. Did you and do it completely by yourself or did your wife go with you? No, it, it wouldn't be a quiet trip if she went. Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> did you hear me? I said, of course I heard you. I don't know what you said, but I heard you. I heard a noise coming from your vicinity and uh -huh. I just chose to ignore it. So. <laughs> what would you learn about yourself during that two-day period? I learned that it's good to do that. Hmm. There's so, I mean... Look, man, with technology, your phone, I mean, people create and build distractions every day mm -hmm. and they shove them in our face and we eat it up, right? Uh, the news, anything on TV, your computer, things that make noise and ding and whistle and alert you and, you know, don't forget about the, you know, calendars and it's just, it's, it's, it's relentless yeah. uh, competition for your attention. But I think when you, and we fall for it, it's just like, give me candy. some more, give me some more. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I gotta have, I gotta. I, I wonder what's going on. Like like you said, Madagascar. I wonder, uh, <laughs> well, you know, what happened on the, on the, on the news today. You know, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. you know, what's the weather gonna be like tomorrow? You know, it's it's things that you can't change. Mm -hmm. And as much as we would like to, mm -hmm. just because we pay attention to them doesn't mean they're gonna change. It just it's gonna get a reaction out of us either way. So I found that when you purposefully and intentionally take those distractions away. You'd be surprised what you what goes on between your ears. You know, you have a lot of time to think about. Uh, for me personally, I mean, I thought about, um, you know, how am I doing? Mm -hmm. uh, do I think I'm doing a good job? Where do I need to get better? Um, how's my relationship with my employees? How's the relationship with my wife, my family? Um, what can I do to get better? I mean, I, I read a lot. I focused on leadership. My my personal leadership abilities. I focused. Uh, I brought a bunch of notepads, and so I'd make notes. Mm -hmm. You know, you have, oh, 
you know, if you're busy, Aha moment. Yeah, if you're busy or you're driving or you're going all over the place, you don't have time to stop and write that stuff down. Mm-hmm. I'm a big, big, big believer of if it's in your head, it doesn't exist. You have to get it out of your head and put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right? It could be an iPad. It, it, it could be writing. I like writing, even though my writing sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you could probably not decipher it, but I know what it means. Mm-hmm. And then I have notebooks in my office at home stacked up all over the place. And, and I'll go back and I'll look at things because it's like a, it's like a timestamp of what I was thinking at a certain time. And it's very interesting to go back and see what I was thinking then versus what I'm thinking now. So that particular trip was, I think it was great. Um, just because I got to know me a little bit better. And yeah. I know Bill Gates does that. I think Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx does that. And a lot of people do it. Um, you just have to make the time and you got to have the want to. I've never done it. I would like to do it. I'm kind of scared to do it. I was too. Because to be honest. Yeah. yeah. To be alone with your own thoughts yeah. for days and not <laughs> you, just a couple you can go hours. Insane, you, right? Yeah. You can go crazy. <laughs> and my when I'm left alone with my thoughts, my thoughts race so fast. And I think of just so many different scenarios and I can't control them. And I'm like, give me something to like distract well, me. That could be good though. It could be when that kind of, when that spigot of thought mm-hmm. opens up and they're your thoughts, they're not what's being programmed onto you by the news or social media. They're your thoughts. Now how they got to be your thoughts, what well, it could be because of all that stuff. But when you don't have that influencing you for a couple of days, then I think you kind of pull the covers back and you get to the meat of, of what's really going on in your head versus what's being put there. Right. Do you think, the first day is more eye-opening or the second day? Because you did two days. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a pro at it yet. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) to me, I didn't want to go up there just to sit around by myself and do nothing. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a waste of time. Um, So as I, the minute I pulled out of my, I left from my office. And so when I left my office, I turned my phone off, which is creepy. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, uh uh-oh. You know, (laughs) because... You you just feel like now all of a sudden there's this anxiety that when you turn it on, this big fist is going to come out. Pow, is it going to yeah. this happen? This happen? This happen? And yeah. You're going to be like, oh my god, oh my god. But um, so I turned it off and I put it in in the console and I said, okay, I said Scott, when you go up here, let's get some work done mentally and emotionally. So what do you want to focus on? I said I want to focus on three things. One is I really, 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 really wanted to drill down on leadership, my leadership abilities me being able to seek out and find and build and create other leaders within my company. So one day it'll grow without me. Um, that was the first thing. I think the second thing was, um, uh, personal challenges, right? I'm one of those people that if I, I I plan my whole year out, like major events, like races or, or, you know, uh, events, trips, things like that. And I, and I, I plug those in, but I know from a physical standpoint, I have to push myself physically and be uncomfortable and do very, very, very hard things because if I see something on the calendar, I know it's coming up. I will do everything I got to do to prepare, Mm. you know, two a days, like going to the gym twice a day. Uh, I'll focus on my diet. I'll stay away from, you know, my, my, uh, my weakness, which is, uh, uh, wine and ice cream. So, Mm. (laughs) because if I know that's coming, I don't do any of that stuff and it makes me better for it. And so, I wanted to plan those out and and make them spaced out so that pretty much the entire year, there's no really uh, downtime to be where I, where I didn't have anything that I was preparing for, mentally or physically. 
And then I think the last thing was just my relationships, uh, my relationships with myself, with my friends, with my family, with, with my wife. And I wanted to say, you know, am I being valuable to them? And, and if I'm not, well, why not? And, and how can I fix that? And so those were the three areas. I think leadership, I think having, you know, putting things strategically on my calendar so that I was pushing myself throughout the entire year and also making sure that I put time and effort into my relationships that I, that I value. How deep and dark does it get being in your own thoughts? Oh, let me tell you this. Speaking of deep and dark, <laughs> we're in the middle of nowhere, right? Uh -huh. So you're in this house by yourself. There's nobody there. There's no security system. I mean, I had a security system with me, but <laughs> there was no security system in the house mm -hmm. and it's dark. And I got to be honest, man, I was, I was a little creeped. <laughs> I was like, what's that noise? Cause you hear the, what's that? What's the that? night noise that you don't typically hear when you're around civilization. Every little bump, I'm, <gasps> you know, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting ready to start just, just blast busting caps. Yeah, boom, 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 just, <laughs> just, just in case somebody's out there. And then, and then I thought, well, what, what if my wife's going to surprise me, you know? And, which would not be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Don't surprise the guy who's, who's scared to death in the house in the woods by himself. You know, <laughs> but um, but that part was a little unnerving too because you're like, what's out there? Mm -hmm. Oh my god, you know, it's. But it was fine. Uh, I just um, I don't think I really got into any dark things. You know, I mean, I guess probably the darkest thing that I got to, uh, you know, my 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 grandfather was, was was one of my first mentors. I loved that man dearly. He he was. He was like a second father. And when he passed away, um, as I'm, you know, he, you know, I, I guess we, we, you know, we, we can go into his background and why he's so important to me, uh, on down the road, uh, later, I guess in the interview. But, um, I always, 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 uh, when, when, when he died and everybody left the room that he was in where his casket was, I went up there by myself and I looked at him and I, and I know he can't hear me, but I was like, look, Everything that I do from this point forward is going to be to make you happy, mm. to make you proud. Because if you're one of those people that believe when you're in heaven, your soul, whatever goes somewhere else, and you can look down, I believe that they're, they're watching over us. And I didn't want to do anything that would disrespect the the faith and the belief and the trust that he put in me. And I wanted to be a good steward of that and make sure that that I became a man that not only I would be proud of, and my friends and my family and my wife would be proud, of, but but him as well. How important is it to have that role model in your life? I well, let's look at at at, at what happens to people that don't have good role models mm -hmm. in their life. You know, how do they turn out? Mm -hmm. We can sit here for three hours and talk about that. Talk about the implication of single mom households. Single and moms, yeah, no father, no mother. You know, you know, not having a mentor, not having somebody that's positive that you can look and say, "Man, I want to be like that guy." You know, I it's monumental, you know, there's, um, I don't think that you can go through life by yourself and be successful. It's the same way with the company. I, I there's a saying, you know, if you want to go fast, go by yourself. Mm. If you want to go far, go with a team. Mm. And so, you know, who you take advice from and who you choose to follow and who you choose to have in your circle that determines where you're going. It's not necessarily what's in your head or your heart, but it's who you're riding with. And if you pick some, some bad teammates, some bad running mates, some bad friends, or you have toxic people in your family, it's going to hold you up man, and, and you'll never become what you're capable of. And so, yeah, I mean, having that mentor, like my grandfather was one of them. 
Uh, there are people that I guess mentor me inadvertently. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never met them, but there are people that I that I follow that mm-hmm. I read their books and I, and I look at them. They're they're mentors to me in a certain way, and I have some mentors that I have met. And um, yeah, I mean, that's I I think it's it's monumental. I think the difficulty is how do you determine who that person is? How do you sort through all the people that are reaching out, um, possibly for selfish reasons? and determine that's the person that I want to follow or that's the person um, I want to mimic or that's the person I trust to learn from? Hmm. How do you sort through all the noise? Um, well, I mean, different people are going to uh, appeal to you, right? What person you may see as a good mentor may not be who I see. Mm-hmm. Um maybe the way somebody's attitude is maybe because uh, I'll give an example. So um, two guys that, that I like a lot that are out there, I guess in the personal development sales training mm-hmm. space. Uh, one guy is Grant Cardone. Mm-hmm. So Grant Cardone has been very successful. Some people are like, that's a snake oil salesman. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's too brash. I don't like what he says, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he, they're not for him mm-hmm. or he's not for that person. Some people, you know, may like a, I don't know, uh, like a, a Tony Robbins, you know, mm-hmm. he, he's different. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they both can help you, but it just depends on, it's just like, you may like rap music. I may hate it. Mm-hmm. I love rock music. You may hate it, but they both are, they, they, they both help us. They both feed us some way. And I think mentors can be the same way. A lot of times, if you're doing the right things, a mentor could find you, mm. you know, and that's the best case, I guess. But, um, no, I mean, I guess you you have to know what you need and, and, and kind of the type of personality that you want to run with. Um, I'm always looking for mentors. Yeah. If, there, if there's a mentor out there, you know, <laughs> that, that is looking, is looking for a mentee, uh, just call me. And, no, I mean, but you want to learn. Yeah. I mean, you want somebody that has kind of already been, been there, done that. Mm-hmm. Like you, if you have a vision and we can talk about this too, I think a lot of people don't even have an idea or can't articulate what they want. Mm. I ask people when they come in for job interviews all the time, what do you want? And they go, huh? I want a job. Well, I want uh, $85,000. No, not what you want money-wise. I said, what do you want? And they they just sit there. But the people that can say, oh, I need this, this, this. There's a girl that works for me now. She got the job because, dude, she had a plan Mm -hmm. for her life. She had it written down. She had a timetable. And and, and she goes, this is what I'm doing. I was like, done. You're in. How important was that versus maybe her experience or, um, you know, how did you determine that that was what you wanted? So there's, we, our hiring process, um, we have a written hiring process. So we utilize a bunch of different things. Now I will say this is for C-suite executives, uh, people in the office, you know, admin people, uh, stuff like that. So the first thing we do is if we put out some sort of an ad, uh, and people start re- responding to the ad. They send their resumes in. That's great. If if there's a resume that looks really really good, then we'll break out the you know the top. Say we get ten of them, we'll break out the top three. Okay, let, let let's reach out to these people. We'll have an initial phone interview, and then depending on how they sound and what it is, then we say okay, we want to talk to this person some more. Then we send them a disc assessment, and what a disc assessment is is essentially like a personality thing. It, it basically when you take this assessment, it's not necessarily a test, but it's an assessment. 
if the person is truthful and they write it out and they answer it correctly, it gives you a very, very good printout as to how they naturally are. Whether you're an introvert or you're an extrovert, do you do well in conflict? Uh, do you thrive in social situations? Are you very detail-oriented or are you a, a high-level person? And it'll tell you all that stuff. And then once you see that, you know, that'll tell you whether they're going to be good for that role. Like if you're not, I'm not high in detail. Mm -hmm. I have no business doing a job where you have to have high details like accounting or anything where I've got to be held to a process. So you're not going to be your own CFO. No, no, no. (laughs) That that was the first thing that I hired. I said, I hate math. I don't, I was not good at math. Um, I mean, it, it, yeah, that, that's not my thing, but I know that's not my thing. So I want to hire somebody who's great at it. Now, my person that I've hired to be great at math, who is my CFO, I mean, he's not a salesperson. He's not going to go into a room full of people and feel comfortable. He's not going to go charm the pants off people. You know, that's kind of what I try to do. <laughs> and so um, once we get the disc assessments and we say, okay, let, let's bring these, these people in. It's kind of twofold because we've just recently went through a round of hiring where we're hiring for project accountant, a pro, uh, accounts payable, uh, project manager, all that kind of stuff. And so when they come in, I kind of let Mike or, or somebody else, Mike is my CFO, I'll let Mike or somebody else who's going to be their direct report go over all the particulars. What about that? And then they are mostly focused on experience, resume, da da da. And then once he's satisfied, he's he looks at me and I'm like, okay, cool. Now I get to ask all the fun questions mm-hmm. and I ask all the fun stuff. Um, I used to ask way more fun stuff, but now we got an HR girl. She's like, you can't ask that. You can't ask like, that anymore. I was like, why not? <laughs> I want to know. And she goes, you can't ask that. Uh-huh. You get sued. I was like, this sucks. This is no fun. I was like, yeah. I was like, you know, so how was your time in jail? You know, he's like, can't ask that. <laughs> you, can't ask like, that. <laughs> you know? And, and, and who'd you, you vote know, for? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, Commie, get out. You know, you can't do that, you know? And so that's, that kind of takes the fun out of it. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've tried to lead my questions so that they will tell me the answers without me having to ask. Mm-hmm. And then if, if every, if it passes the, the skills and background and, and I call it the resume test and then the personality and the culture and the fit, the drive, the, you know, their heart, um, uh, their work ethic, that's kind of where I come in. And if they pass both of those, then we give you a shot. So I think it was maybe two years ago, you told me that you're starting to do uh, the personality assessment in hiring. Yeah. Do you think that's been very effective in your hiring process? Because you have enough data now to know if the personality assessment that you got back was accurate and if it was actually helpful. Have you seen a benefit or do you think looking back, it wasn't as useful as you had thought? Because I know it's still a part of your process. Yeah. But have you sat down and kind of reflected on how effective that really was? Um, I would say it's a tool. It, it, it's not foolproof. It's not 100 percent. You just use it as a guide. Mm. Um, has it been a helpful guide? I would say yes. Just because you hire somebody and they are what their disc assessment says they were, does that mean they're going to stay with you forever and retire? No. Things come up, things happen. And, you know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you don't know until you know. Um, When you're trying to get a job interview, it's like a first date. 
if you're going out on a date with that hot girl, that hot guy, you say whatever you think dude, they want to hear. You say anything. You dress up. You know, uh-huh. you comb your hair, you brush your teeth, you find your best shirt, your power shirt. You know, you want to wear that one, so you look. You know, you, you know, you put your best watch on and 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 your best jacket, and you go out and you and you try to you try to do everything you can to get in good graces with them. Now, fast forward a year later, you move in together. You leave your drawers out. You the toilet seat up, you know, you, you, you snore, you know, you, you, you know, you, you fart in public, you know, it, it's like, those are things you're like, man, that is not what I got on the first day. That's not, not, that's on your not how I saw this going, <laughs> you know, and then you, you, you make changes, you know? So it's the same thing with, with hiring people, man. It's just a, it's a great big organization full of relationships. Mm. You know, I always say work is easy. People are difficult. If you can find somebody that's capable and willing to do the work, that's almost the easy part. Even in today's society, it's it's dealing with their personality and what comes along with them that you don't know about. That obviously my HR person so eloquently said I can't ask about. Mm-hmm. I said we could have found all this stuff out if you would have just let me ask from the beginning. <laughs> I know? could have known this day one. <laughs> yes, I could have known they were an axe murderer, but you know, you I, I can't ask that. No, you can't. You can't ask that. No, but. Oh, well, my hands are tied, right? <laughs> so typically when I start these conversations, um, I've been asking. Thank you for having me, by the way. Oh, awesome. <laughs> it's like, a, like an hour in. <laughs> We're like an hour in. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> typically when I start, I like to start with um, just like fun questions. Something that you can kind of gut react to. and uh, Lightning round, as they call lightning it. Lightning right? round. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to start. You ready? Pick one. Country. Hip hop or EDM? Can't pick rock. Wow, I'm gonna this say is country. taking a while to country. figure out. Well, I mean, there's a reason. So okay. I, I like a little bit of all of it, uh-huh, uh-huh. but it has to be good. There's mm. really, really bad rap, and I know this because every time I pull up to a traffic light, people that, people that like rap want everybody to hear it. So I would say country because country, they're actually talented. <laughs> they actually play their instruments. They write their own songs. They produce their own stuff. And they also are very, very, very good storytellers. Hmm. So you have, there's weight in the lyrics and the meaning. True. And the way that it's presented, I think. What's your favorite rock band? Kiss. Second? Motley Crue. If you could be in the back row for Kiss or be backstage for Motley Crue, which would you pick? I've done both. (laughs) (laughs) But when I was in backstage at Motley Crue, it was after they were kind of sober and it was very tame. It wasn't as exciting. No, I mean, I've had backstage parties were way better than that. (laughs) Um, I still say backstage at, at Motley Crue because you have that intimate personal, you know, where you can ask questions and talk. Yeah. Who gets more girls, drummers or lead singers? I, hmm. Good girls or just girls? <laughs> <laughs> when you're a rock yeah. star, is there a difference? Yeah. So <laughs> I think if you're in one of those bands, it's hard to say, man. I mean, drummers are fun, but the lead singer is the lead singer. Yeah. You know, uh, I think if you look over all bands, obviously the lead singer. Hmm. I think drummer's probably close second. Close second? Yeah, yeah. 
over a guitarist or bassist or anyone else? I don't know, man. There's some talented girl getting bass players, you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's the quiet ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Favorite pre show meal? I don't because uh, before a show, I don't like to eat. Why? Because I'm not one of those drummers that just sits back there and kind of chills out. Mm -hmm. it, it is an athletic event. It is it is it is MMA fist fight. And yeah. so I'm not going to load up on food because it's going to rob me of, of energy. And um, so yeah, I, I I don't eat like like when we were I was really broke and we were touring. We played in Chicago, and um, this girl loved our band, and she was at sound check and loaded because my mom cooked you guys an Italian feast. Uh. I was like, great. <laughs> So we were going to go over there and eat. And I was like, this is fantastic. But sound check lasted way too long. And we had a hard start time. She goes, if we hurry, we can eat. And then you can be back here in time for your show. Like, okay, cool. We haul ass over there. This woman had, I mean, rolls, wine, spaghetti, everything. I was like, and dude, we were starving. Yeah. I mean, because we had no money. Mm -hmm. And we went in there and we laid waste to this table. I mean, I ate more in about a 10 or 12 minute span than I had in the last two weeks. And I was like, oh, that was great. Haul ass back to the club. Walk in. And it's, it's go like right then. Dude, we start playing. I'm just ah, in the lights. Yeah. I'm just like, you know, I'm, <laughs> we were going off the wall, man. Like, and all that wine and spaghetti. It was it was like, uh, imagine all that stuff in a, um, like you're making a martini. Try, shake it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're just, yeah. The stage got painted with some spaghetti and wine that night. So it was, never do that. I was like, Don't do that. I'm not doing that anymore. So, yeah. Then, favorite drunk food? Yes, anything. Anything. <laughs> At the end of a show, what are you eating? Um, man, we here in the South, man, we would always go to Waffle House. Mm. Waffle House was where everybody went, and the, God help those waitresses, man, because it's like, you know, the, 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 this, they got to deal with the debauchery. They do, they do, they do. <laughs> and, and but uh, Waffle House was always fantastic, or Crystals. Hmm. Crystals. I've had none of that in a very long time, by the way. It's, it would be great. Up north, <laughs> it's White Castle. Yep. <laughs> would you rather perform in front of 10,000 people or would you rather sell a million albums? <sighs> Obviously a million albums, but... For the there, money? Yeah, there are people who have made a good, very good, good living not touring very often. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of that, most of the bands that I've been in, all the bands that I've been in, never really made like rock star money. We were never, I never got rich because of 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 playing in a band. But I've played in front of 10,000 people before. Mm -hmm. I will never forget that as long as I live. What is that, that like? It's, I mean, even when I talk to people now about these festivals we used to play, like we were on the Uproar Tour with, you know, Shine Down and Stained and Godsmack. And so when we walk out on stage, it's like, ah. It's loud, man. Yeah. I mean, just the crowd is loud. I'm like, man, I, I, that's why I want everything on the stage to be up so loud because you can't hear yourself over the crowd. And just the hair on my neck stands up just even thinking about it because that's that's my that's I feel like that was what I was meant to do. Yeah. But um, we did this. Uh, I was playing in L.A. one time and uh, we did a uh, an interview for this uh, uh, Japanese magazine and this girl from Japan had flown over and she was at the, at the show and we were taking care of her. And she was on the bus doing an interview, and she goes, how does it feel to be rich and famous? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. I said, hold on a second. I said, you know, I can tell you what it feels like to be famous. Rich, 
I haven't got there yet. <laughs> no clue. Especially <laughs> not from this. I mean, I'm friends with guys who you know as rock stars mm-hmm. that uh, they come home and deliver pizzas mm. or they work a job when they come home or they park cars. So that is kind of what made me want to exit the music business as a career. But anyway, but uh, yeah, I think I would at this point, um, I'm a capitalist. Yeah. And so I think uh, Give me the, money. the million records, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can do a lot with that. Yeah. Private jet or yacht? That's we, a good question. We've gone back and forth on this many times. Mm. And the picture on your screensaver has changed over the years. <laughs> yeah, it has. Um, I think you use both for, for two different things. Um, you got to pick one. I mean, I'd like both also. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> if God mm. said you can have one, which one are you taking? I almost hate to say this because it's blasphemy because I love... I love aviation. Mm-hmm. I want to be a pilot. I love jets. But I'd have to say the yacht, man, because of square feet. You mm-hmm. have more square feet. You can enjoy it with more people. Um, it's not very fast, <laughs> but you don't need to be fast. You can just kind of hang out, and you can have a party. I can have a party in a jet, too. But, um, Anywhere. Yeah, yeah. You could hit that mile high club. But um, you can do that on a yacht, too. So I would say if I could only have one uh, – I could use both for business purposes, but I would definitely say the yacht. Okay. You do endurance racing, Ironman, things like this. What's more difficult, the run, the swim, or the biking? At first, I would say it was the swimming. Quick story. So um, my buddies and I said, we're going to do Ironmans, but they had these little things called sprint triathlons. They're a little short versions of that you do all all three but it's very short distances i say very short you just about an hour and a half you're doing all all that stuff so we we joined one and uh, i used to race bmx bikes almost i was i was about to turn pro before I, I stopped so it was i was very very into that and so um traveled all over the country doing races um and at that point i was running i'd run some marathons and i was running a lot so i kind of felt good running I, I got a road bike and I, it took me two seconds to get back to where i was in bike form but the swimming part, I was like, man, I've been swimming my whole life. I've little kids swim. I was mm. like, yeah, I got it. Big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> big, <laughs> big mistake. Because the day comes for the race, and I'm sitting there, is it Lake Lanier? And I'm sitting on they have a beach area. And I see where you swim out of this first buoy, you swim over to two or three more buoys, and then you swim back down, you get out on and then you run up and get on the bike and you do do the run. I'm I'm in shape. You know, so I'm sitting there and I, and I don't have like the little stretchy suits with the, you know, all the, the all the, you know, the, the sponsors and stuff like that on it. I'm just out there in my, in my regular swimming shorts and I'm looking around and I mean, you know, I'm, like I said, I, I, I'm, I'm in shape. I mean, yeah. I, I had a little six pack going on and I'm looking at all these other guys and they have like man tits, dad bods, love <laughs> handles. And I'm looking around, I was like, these guys are not in shape at all. I'm going to crush these I was guys. Like, I'm going to win this shit. I was like, I'm, I'm going to win the whole thing. I said, I'm you just see me up on the podium. I'm going to win this race. <laughs> and I saw one guy who like he was in shape and I, he looked like he'd done this before. The look in his face, he's like, he's getting ready to attack this thing. I said, I'm just going to stick with that guy and I'll pass him at the end. I won't worry about that chunk. Dude. <laughs> they said, go. We all jumped in. These dudes, I mean, if you could imagine a washing machine and an MMA fight in a lake, that's what it felt like. Uh-huh. Immediately, my heart rate goes through the roof. I'm panicking. 
I got feet hitting me in the face. I can't see. Um, guys are coming over the top of me, pushing me down. I mean, I mean, it is just, I am panicking. There's only been two times in my life where I thought this is the day that I'm going to die. <laughs> that was one of them. Uh-huh. And I'm freaking out my heart. I mean, I literally almost got where I couldn't breathe and they have safety people along the course of the swim and they have these boats and all these paramedics and EMTs. And one of them's looking at me, he's got his hand out like now, now I'm like, my brain's saying, take it, take it, take it. But I said, stop, roll over on your back, catch your breath. And we're going to talk about, this is me talking to me. Yeah, I yeah. Said, Scott, we're going to talk about this. And I roll over on my back. I'm looking up and my heart rate calms down. I said, here's what you're going to do. Can you swim to that next buoy? Yes. Good. We're going to go to that one and you're going to flip back over and we're going to talk again. Go. And so I roll back over. And at this point, they've all gone. So I was in the water first, and I'm last at this point. <laughs> I was like, well, there goes my idea of winning the whole thing. <laughs> it's so, not as easy as it looks. Yeah, and I get to the first buoy, and I roll over on my back, and I look up, catch my breath. Can you go to the second one? Look up. Yes. Roll over and go to that one, and we'll talk again. So I swim to the next one and roll over. As everybody's piling out of the water, they're already on the bike, and I'm back there going, <gasps> and so finally I get out of the water. And that taught me a very good lesson about how you take these big problems and you can break them down into bite-sized pieces and you mm. can get through anything. And that's my first lesson in Ironmans and triathlons. But I, when I got out of the water, I was shaking so bad. <laughs> but I guess the moral of the story is I was fast enough on the bike and the run where – I, I was last coming out of the water and I made it all the way up to 16th. So I, out of about 60 people. So it's pretty good. Uh, you got to be pretty happy about I that result. My, I'm, I'm just glad I didn't die. I'm like, my mom is going to watch the news tonight and they're going to see them dragging her dead son <laughs> out of this lake. And I'm like, Oh my God, I was, I was embarrassed for my family. I was, I was, I was this, I'm too young to die. You know? But so at that point, um, I said, I have to have a coach. I have to have a swimming coach. And and she corrected a whole bunch of stuff that I was doing wrong. And I'm much better at it mm. now. So I, I feel much, much better. Um, so at the time, the first, when I first started, um, to answer your question, um, the swimming part was absolutely the hardest. Um, I didn't feel like I was going to die in the bike or the run. You could just stop. Yeah. In the middle of the damn lake with people crawling over the top of you, kicking you in the face, you can't just stop. Yeah. You'll sink to the bottom. Yeah. So the, the the swim was the hardest, and it's still the scariest. But I know that, like, when I did the one in Puerto Rico, the last one I, I did, we were in the ocean swimming against this current under a bridge. It was like swimming uphill. And I was I, I rocked that. And, it, and when I got out of the water, I was like, I got it now. And so I always feel better when the swim is over. Because you can't die in the other parts. I mean, you could die. I mean, I, could, I had my but... first wreck um, mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico, too. Though It had rained while I was swimming. And um, the streets are horrible. They're, they're, <laughs> you could ride on the surface of the moon, and it would be better than, than, the, uh, than, than the roads in Puerto Rico. And I'm doing about 30 miles an hour through this intersection, and my front wheel just goes whoosh, and slips just a little bit, mm. just enough for me to come off of it. My face and head went boom, hit the hit the asphalt and I slid through this intersection and that was, yeah, my little, my fancy stretchy suit was torn and I'm bleeding all over the place. My bike's all jacked up. I had to fix it and I got back on it. But yeah. So did you finish the race? Oh, absolutely. I'm never not, not finishing. No. Wiped out, hurt, bleeding, still finish. I had 52 more miles to go after that. Wow. Yeah. 
Good 52 times. Two miles. That was a good day, and it was hot as balls, uh-huh. dude. There's no trees in Puerto Rico, <laughs> at least none that were shading the run part. And there was hills, and I did not do very well. I mean, that I would say that 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 wreck and the headwinds and the heat, it just it was not my day. But I said, okay, I'm not going to do my personal best, but I'm going to finish. Mm-hmm. Period. And so, no matter I, what, no matter what, that's it. That's the promise I made to myself, and that's what I kept. So that's amazing. Yeah. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yes. What do you remember about your? <laughs> what do you remember about your twenties? Um, there was no internet. It was a completely different world. You just dated me. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't have cars and such back then. How how was it riding in a wagon, Scott? You That's know, exactly. <laughs> With your horse and carriage. Yeah, yeah. Mind you don't hit them bumps, Malachi. <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember about your 20s? Because when I think back to my 20s, it's vague. Yeah. I did a lot of partying. And I don't think I did as much partying as you did. Or did you? Well, I don't know. You went to college, so there had a lot of parties in college. True. Being in a rock band is a college without the formal education, mm. right? Um, I kind of like my 20s, man. I I, um, I got to do some cool things. Um, you know, the sex, drugs, rock, rock and roll thing. I, w- I will tell you that I was never like a really big drug guy. There was a period of time outside of my 20s where about a year and a half where I was, you know, I was an ecstasy guy. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, oh, this stuff's great. Mm-hmm. Until I felt like, I, you know puts holes in your brain and, yeah. and things like that. And, it just and doesn't hit the same anymore after a while. No, no. <laughs> and, and you need more and more. But I was uh-huh. like, look, I can't. This this is only going to end one one way, and it's mm-hmm. not good. So I'd, one day I was like, that's it. But uh, other than that, I was just a drinker, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I, I will say that, the man, I have the gauntlet of my 20s as far as, you know, drinking and the partying and the things that we did. I'm, I'd praise the Lord, man, that I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> I wasn't dead. Uh, I didn't maim or disfigure myself. Um, nothing that would affect me for the rest of my life happened, man. So, so thank God for that. But, um, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I didn't have a lot, you know, there was, um, I moved out of my parents' house when I was uh, 18 to go to music college out in LA Mm -hmm. and I got a hard, hard Mike Tyson hit to the face, uh, of reality when I moved out to California on my own. But I was a little more equipped, I guess, coming back to Atlanta in my 20s. I was in a popular rock band, so we would play like Center Stage Theater or the Roxy, and it was sold out. You know, So we had, we had some success, and you, like I said, you kind of feel like a rock star when you're that young, and the world is your oyster, and mm-hmm. you know, there's girls around to validate your existence, and you feel like a stud and all that kind of stuff. And So for that reason, it was fun. Man, I had a band of brothers that I loved. We got along very well, except for there was one bad part. <laughs> we we can talk about that. Um, but um, other than that, man, it was fun. I got to make music with my friends. I got to travel. I got to see the country. Uh, I learned a lot about life. Learned a lot about myself. Um, so it wasn't that bad. I mean, there was just the right amount of of partying and and doing cool things. I I, I wasn't overly excessive. Well, there's a couple times I was overly <laughs> excessive with the drinking, but. For the most part, man, it was um, it was fun, you know. Lived for the music. Yeah, I, I definitely think that looking back now, had I started on the path that I'm on now, back in my twenties, oh man, who who knows, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what it, what or where I would be now. But you know, life's about experiences, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about money or 
net worth now it is, but, <laughs> but I mean, uh, but, but, but back then and, and, and even now, man, I mean, you can't take stuff with you. It's yeah. about your life experiences and the relationships you have and who you become in pursuit of those, you know, things. I think you got to live your life. You do. You need stories to tell as you get you older. Do. You and, do. And make, it's a part of who you are. And if the, if my twenties gave me anything, it's great stories. You were in a lot of bands, um, moving around, and then you eventually linked up with the band Uncrowned, mm-hmm. and that's the one that kind of blew up. Yeah, we did a lot. How did that even happen? Because you jumped around a lot, a lot right? No, well, I mean, I was in one band, and they, it was it was that band that I got in when I came back from L.A. Name? Um, uh, well, it, it, it took on two different names. The first one... Uh, it was called Stoneheart because mm-hmm. <laughs> we were getting ready to do a show and the promoter was was like, what's your band name? And we're like, trust me. He goes, no, what's your band name? He goes, no, that's the band name. He goes, that sucks. <laughs> and so we were like, all right. He goes, so uh, this uh, Keith Stoneheart kid, he goes, he, is that his real name? I was like, yeah. He goes, why don't you just call it that? Call it what, Keith Stoneheart? He says, no, just call it Stoneheart. I was like. And we talked to Keith, and, and Keith was like, "Man, I don't want to call the band my name." It's like, "No, I yeah. said that, that, that's that's that, I'm not doing that." But the show was coming up, and we we had to, and we couldn't think of anything better, so we were like, "All right, we're gonna call the band Stoneheart." So that that version of the band became uh, when we changed it later. We said, "Yeah, we need to change it because when the '90s came around, it was eh, that's kind of '80s sounded." So yeah, yeah. we changed it to four because there were four of us, mm-hmm. and we felt like we were family. And so, um, and then. Uh, same band parted ways with two of the members. It was just me and Keith. And I said, look, let's start over. Let's can do some, let's take a time off, take a breather. Let's do something completely different. And so then we started another band and that was called the Ajax heavies. It was more of a Foo Fighters, y kind of heavy pop kind of, kind of band and had some success with that too, you know, but, um, that, I, I, and I, and I call it, um, that, that was, you know, act one, I would say that, that was stuff that Keith and I did together mm-hmm. was, I call that act one. So then Keith got married, had kids. Um, you know, the band is not a really great place for family. <laughs> and we, yes. And, 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 and so it, it can cause strains and those strains found it, found their way to his house. And so he had to make a choice and obviously he chose, he chose his wife and daughter and his daughter actually just had their first child. So he just became a grandfather. grandfather. Wow. Yeah. So, had he not done that, mm-hmm. you know, and so for me, um, I had a, I took about a year and a half off. Um, my wife I, it was not my wife at the time; she was my girlfriend, and we lived together. And um, so it just always bothered me, man, that I wasn't playing. I said, mm-hmm. "I'm too young. I there, I have more stuff to do." I felt like I I wanted to. I I still had it in me to go do it. And I still had the drive, the determination, and I had the end game that I wanted to have was still burning. And so, you know, she'd hear me talk about it all the time. And, and she's like, well, why don't you go do this? Why don't you go do that? I said, oh, I just, I just don't know. And, and literally I'm sitting on the couch one night. I remember like it, like it was yesterday. And, uh, and I'm sitting there complaining. I need to get in the band. She goes, why don't you just go do it? And I was like, you're right. Mm. Action. You can sit here and talk all day, but until you actually do something about it, nothing will happen. Things don't change unless you change. So I said, I'm going to get dressed. And I'm going to go down to the Ten High. A buddy of mine's band or some people that I knew were playing down there, down in Virginia Highlands, a little small area here in Atlanta. And um, 
I decided to go down there and just mill around with my friends and say, hey, everybody's looking for a band. And it was like 9 o'clock at night. And I got up off the couch, put clothes on, did my hair, tried to look rocker-like. Mm-hmm. I go down there, and uh, I saw this guy who played guitar in a band that my friend played drums for. And um, we're in the bathroom taking a pee next to each other. I was like, hey, uncrowned guy, right? He goes, hey, you're Eric's buddy, right? I was like, yeah. I said, where's Eric? He goes, oh, he left. I said, oh, he was here? He says, no, he left the band. I was like, uh, cool. I said, do you have a drummer? He goes, no. <laughs> he goes, you still play drums? I was like, yeah. He goes, do you, uh, uh, you mind if I give you a CD? I was like, no, cool. He goes, you want to audition? I was like, sure. So he gave me the CD and says, you know, learn, learn a song or two. And then, you know, we'll call you and you can come out. So I said, okay. So I went home and I put the CD in. I was like, damn, it was, it was slaying dragons, man. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was like, that is a dangerous, loud rock band. I was like, that's something that I can get behind. And, um, and rock wasn't well known in Atlanta at that time. It was it, Atlanta. It was it was on the it. downside. Mm. Yeah, it, it, we could still play a place and draw a good a good crowd, but it wasn't like it was in the nineties, mm. not at all. And so, I went home and learned the whole record. And when we had our first rehearsal, it was at his house and it was like in a garage. And so I came in, I met the rest of the band, I loaded my drums in. I was you know all nervous and oh, what's, what's, what's going to happen? I just said, look, Scott. I mean, I said I hadn't played with anybody in a year and a half. I said just go in there and let it. Let it, let it fly. And um, it was a small room. I mean, it was, it was probably twice the size of this one. And uh, so if you put a rock band in a small room, mm-hmm. it's, it's percussive, you know. And um, he goes, what song are you going to play? I said, I, I learned all of them. He goes, you learned all of them. I was like, yeah, just pick one. So we picked one, and, man, Rocked out. I was swinging from back. I was like, bam, I was, I was beating the brakes off this thing. And, dude, immediately, there's a thing in the band called, you know, The Face. And when stuff's really rocking, you go, you know, you're like, you know, you, you start making that face of approval. Yeah. There that, are four, instant connection. Four faces of approval were like, this, this is going to be something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had, I took care of all the business in my other bands. I was like the business manager. I was the guy that would go to New York and sit trying to get record company interest. I would sit with our attorney and all that kind of stuff. And Jack Andre was the guitar player in Uncrown, and he had been doing all that up until that point. Well, now you got him and you got me. And so I said, let's go out and start trying to build our, our team. I can help book shows. You can take care of some of the business stuff. We had an attorney lined up. And so I was like, okay, great. And then we played our first show at the Hard Rock, and it was packed, man. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is, yes, I'm back. And then literally... A few months later, uh, we won this contest to go down to Cabo San Lucas. And Sammy Hagar picked us out of like 400 bands around the country to come down and play his birthday party in Cabo San Lucas. He owns a, a facility down there. It's, it's, a, it's a club. It's a bar called Cabo Wabo. And next thing you know, we're on a plane. And we land. These fleet of SUVs pick us up, take us to our rooms. People come out with these big trays and tequila shots. He goes, compliments of Mr. Hagar. Mm-hmm. I was like, I like the Sammy guy, man. He's awesome. And then we have our, our rooms and they have care packages, which, of course, includes tequila. And we go to the club. 
And I'm like, wow. And there's line. Of, it had to be three or four blocks long. Around. Mm. I said, what are these people doing here? He goes, they're trying to get into your show. I said, that's in two days. And they're like, they camp out for days for this. I was like, cool. So, so people are going to show up. Man, I had no idea. When, when, when those doors opened up and we walked down the back and came out on stage, it, it was insane. You know, Chad Kroger was there, uh, Kenny Chesney. Like, I think uh, at one point, Christina Aguilera was down there. I mean, all, all these all these famous people come down there for his birthday, and we're hanging out, having it. It, it, it was magical. And I was like, this is where I – this was a good decision. Getting up, and it all started with me just getting up off the couch and taking some action. So Just get off your ass, go do it, and it just all fell into place. Yeah, I mean it's 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 amazing what a little bit of hard work will do. Yeah, you know, just a little bit of initiative. Yeah, kids, listen to that. <laughs> That's my advice to anyone sitting on the couch playing video games and Xbox, eating McDonald's. Get off your Nothing ass. Nothing is going to happen for mm-hmm. you in your life. So I'm then, cut, cutting to the end of the story. <laughs> what was that feeling like? Finally, feeling like you broke through. It was satisfying, but I knew. Did you was, know you were going to eventually get there? Was it more validation or sigh of relief that your hard work had paid off? Or, um, you know, it had paid you off. lucky? It had paid off to that point because, you know, here, around here, we were, we were a big band. It's like, you know, we would play places and it's packed, you know, you know, oh my God, you know, and all, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we go to other parts of the country, nobody heard of us yet. So we knew we had some work to do. And, you know, you get on, on a show with a band like Stained or, um, you know, we play with uh, bands like uh, Puddle of Mud and Flyleaf and all that kind of stuff. When you see those bands, it's it's a different story, you mm-hmm. know, because you're like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> they got a fleet of buses and a crew and we're out there loading our own gear. And so, you know, we knew we had an- another couple of steps to take to get where we wanted to be, where it could really be our career. Like, like it could pay our bills it could it, it could take care of our houses, whatever car I wanted. Because back in the day, man, when I was out in L.A., this is uh, early 90s, um, you know, when you got a record deal, you were set. Mm-hmm. Like, they gave you a fat advance check. You know, you could buy the Ferrari, get a house, take care of your parents. It's, it wasn't, by the time I got to where I got a record deal, it wasn't like that. Mm. When I got my record deal, I had to work that day. And then we left and went down to our attorney's office and signed a bunch of documents and i mean i was so pissed off because of the stuff that had gone at work that day you know we did a shot of tequila and we just went home and it was so anticlimactic there's yeah. no party do we know we go to the strip club and make it rain you know it, it was there was none of that stuff that's how i envisioned it being yeah and it wasn't and not only that but you know record deals weren't we didn't get this big advance we got enough money to go into the studio and you know, if what you made in the studio wasn't magic, you weren't going anywhere. Just burn it, burning it. Then. Yeah. And so, you know, we had done a lot of the work on our own. But, um, yeah, I mean, so I guess long story short, to, to, to cut to the chase with that specific band, we, we achieved a certain level. And it was more than most bands. But it wasn't like a, a Nickelback or a Foo Fighter. I mean, mm. that's what we wanted. But we, we also knew that the, being the type of band that we were, we're probably never going to get to that. But there were other levels of, of a heavy rock band that we could get to. And we knew we had a long way to go. And I always said, and this is my, this is my 
my uh, motto or, or my my theory or my statement to myself, even to this day, even with business, as long as you're making progress, as long as you're moving forward, as long as people's heads and hearts are still in the right place and they're still working towards a specific goal, even if you're just crawling towards the goal, I'm in. Mm. But when you're stagnant for a long period of time or the work ethic's not there or you, you start going backwards or everybody's not in it to win it, then I'm out. And it got to that point where um, everybody was not in it to win it. And um, the music business had changed. It's harder and harder and harder to make money being in a band. You can go out and tour, but, you know, I'm, I was gone nine months out of the year. There's only so much of that crap you can take before your, your wife and, or kids or whatever start mm-hmm. saying, hey, man, I don't mind you being gone, but when you come back, <laughs> I want to see some money. Yeah. And that wasn't happening. So there you go. That was that. So the internet changed the way music works. Yeah. If you were to do your band now in the day and age of YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, um, short clips, ability to self-promote yourself, what do you think you would have done differently? I think... It makes it where the audience is more accessible quickly. Mm-hmm. We started learning this even back then, but it also made it where there's more people, there's more people to choose from. More competition. So in the 70s, record company rosters were were somewhat small. They would pick their one or two bands and they would put everything they had behind those bands. And that's in part what made them successful. It was their ride or die. Like we're putting everything we got into these guys. Now record company rosters are are huge because anybody can be a band, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody can be a singer. Anybody can put a video out back then. You know, the big thing I was more excited. I think I sent you a couple of them, but I was so excited when it come time to go do a video, Mm -hmm. but you know, we had to have a, a camera crew and, and, and all this stuff. It was different than now. Now, I mean, hell, anybody can make a video. Mm-hmm. Anybody can make music. Anybody. You don't, uh, I was going to tell you too, I don't know if you know this or not, but across the street from where we are now yeah. is Tree Sound Studio. Mm-hmm. Paul Diaz owns that. That room, no, people drive by there every day and have no idea. Most of the, mu- a lot of music that they love, that they grew up on, was recorded in that room. Mm-hmm. And, um, Everybody from you know Matchbox Twenty to Snoop Dogg, Elton John, um, hell, my band rec- recorded there. And, Literally across street from here. Yeah, and um, but to to record in that room over there is is horrifically expensive. Mm. It's a lot of money. I mean that the A room over there. I know Paul Diaz. He I mean he spent millions of dollars putting stuff in that one room just so he could attract that kind of talent. Um, so for us, I mean, just to even get in a studio like that was a monumental feat, and we had to bust our ass to make that happen. Now, you go to Guitar Center or wherever and buy a bunch of stuff. Next thing you know, you have a studio. Well, that sounds great. Or like me, just build one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's, that's, that's that work ethic. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Same thing with video. What I would do differently, um, I know that, there are people that are very good at doing that at social media, at doing videos and music. And this is what I've learned in in business as well. Identify what you're good at and do that. 
don't try to waste a bunch of time to get really good at something that you're not. Now, that's not saying you can't learn a new skill. Uh, you should. I mean, that, that's what keeps your brain fresh and active. But if I had a band and it was a business, I would hire somebody to do each of those things and make sure they're very good at it, and I would let them put it out. But because of that, it's not it, it you know bands don't make a ton of money uh now just putting out records mm. they make money by touring which is expensive mm-hmm. those buses yeah they're expensive uh you know you got to pay a crew you got to put people in hotels you got to have food you got to put gas um it, it's expensive that is really where you can make the money but it also costs you the most too and but as a, as far as a band goes, you asked me this earlier. You know, would would you rather sell a million records or play in front of ten thousand people? I was like, I want to do both. Mm. <laughs> but you know, that's the that's what the that's the, really the payment that that bands get is being able to walk out on stage and seeing people, because we're all most people in bands are, are extroverts. They're self gratification people. It's like me 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 clap 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 clap, and. That's what I, you know, you don't get that in the corporate world. Like, you know, I, I would walk out on stage before and, ah, people hold up signs, you know, play this song and they're singing along the songs that you wrote in some guy's basement. I don't get that when you walk into a boardroom, people are like, you know, they're looking at you like you should be glad that you're even here. Yeah, start you talking. Know? Yeah. They, you know, no, no girls in the boardroom pull their, pull their boobies out and not, guys don't clap days. and give you a high five. You know, <laughs> there, there's that. none of that. And I was like, okay, this may take some getting used to, but, but yeah. So, um, what I would do differently, uh, I, I would, I wouldn't try to do it all myself. I would hire people who are very, very good at it and let them do their job. And if they didn't, you put somebody in there that does. Hmm. Back to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Good thing to get back to. You're, you've become, we're part of the story where you are a uh, world famous rock star. Traveling, doing um, lots of shows, starting to be on TV, um, and kind of heading in the direction where you feel like you're going. What's your, what's your craziest, tell me your craziest rock star story. <laughs> Oh man. Um hmm. gotta choose this wisely. <laughs> so somebody said, Ben, all these great stories, you should write a book. I was like, Oh, that'd be a great idea. Uh not while I'm alive. I said, as long as my as long as me or my parent I, I would write it and then release it upon my death. You know? <laughs> because then then I don't have to take care of the consequences or repercussions. So a little peek behind the window of yeah. rock star life. There, um, there's a lot of cool stories. Um, oh man, there's the, so there's little things, right? Like, um, I, I'll give you a couple of little little smaller ones first, and and then I'll I'll, I'll give you one that, that that's suitable for for podcast. Um. <laughs> Uh, so if any of my old bandmates listen to this, I'm not going to tell the Kentucky story. <laughs> That's I'm going to have to hear that one later. No, no, no. I'll tell you that one off. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, that's if my, just in case my parents or yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. Um, some cool small things would be like, you know, like, like you said, the first time you see yourself on TV, that's pretty cool. You know, you get emails and stuff from Australia. Hey, I saw you on that show. That, that's pretty cool. Um, I was riding with my wife and my in-laws one time. We were going hiking, and um, 
uh, our song uh, that we had, Remember Your Ghost, was on uh, Sirius XM. It, it, was, it was one of the most requested songs. It, it was in the top. So they had this count, top 20 countdown. Mm-hmm. And we made it all the way up to number 10 one week. And we're driving. And I was listening to it. And next thing you know, our song comes on. And they... You know they're they're giving a little bumper talking about the band and stuff and and I turned it up a little bit louder and I looked back and, and, my, and my in-laws were like, is that you on the radio? I was like, why well, yes, that is me on the radio. <laughs> Imagine that, you know. And they were like, wow, that's awesome, you know. So then I, I kind of felt, you know, I'm on the radio, you know. And so uh, somebody sent us something the other day. I guess they played our song on satellite and they took a picture of it and sent it to me and Jack. So I was like, oh, memories. Uh, things like that are cool. Um, I think, like I said, when you get to do interviews, we would go up to New York a lot and do interviews at Sirius Satellite Radio, which is fantastic. The people you meet are great. All the stories that you hear, the the camaraderie with, with other bands. There's there's a thousand, there's a million really cool stories. But I'll go back to what I talked about earlier. So um, Nickelback was huge at this time. Um, and when we got picked by Sammy to come down and play in Mexico, you know, we got the VIP treatment. We flew down there. Um, Sammy was awesome. Uh, Mike Anthony from the um, from Van Halen was in his band, and so he was awesome. Uh, the whole staff. I mean, a lot of the people that are down there worked for Van Halen, and so they would come down and, and we would hear stories like Van Halen stories, like when Sammy and Eddie almost got in a fist fight on a private jet one time when they were leaving, and they got they got so mad that that. Uh, and he's like, I'm taking my own plane. So he rents, he charges another jet and takes his own private jet to the same place. Cause he can't stand being around mm-hmm. Sammy. Um, but anyway, all, they were very cool to us, man. They, they treated us like rock stars, but when you really felt like a rock star is when you get accepted by other rock stars. Mm-hmm. And so we had just played there again. Like I said, there's 2000 people crammed into this play and it is just off the wall, man. Um, we get done playing, we come up, we're back in the dressing room. Sammy and them go down and start playing and they play some Van Halen stuff. You know, they would do some Sammy Hagar stuff. I can't drive 55 and all that. And, um, uh, so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm having a drink with, with this guy. He's in like cut off jean shorts and he has, uh, like a baseball hat on kind of scruffy wire rim round glasses. And, um, you know, we're t- cool dude, man. We're, we're doing shots and eating some chips and hey, man, I loved you guys. We're high five. Cool, man. And, um, I didn't really, I probably should have asked who he was, you know, but there was like, oh, that's Kenny. That's Kenny. I said, yeah, I know. I thought he was like a bus driver mm-hmm. or, you know, like, like he used to drive the bus for, for Van. That's what he looked like, you know? And, um, so we'll stick that off to the side just for a second. So Chad Kroger's in the room. He's in, he's backstage with us. He goes, man, you guys were great. I, I said, oh, wow. I really appreciate it. I started talking to him about some production stuff. And so, uh, he goes, um, let's go and watch Sammy. So, if I could describe it, so we're on a second floor office backstage area. Um, these big, huge hand carved wooden doors open up, and then there's a catwalk that goes over the crowd of people. And then it goes over by the stage, and these stairs come down the back onto the stage. So as soon as you open those doors and you walk out over that catwalk, people look up and they can see you coming to the stage. So he goes, Let's go up to the catwalk. I was like, Cool. We open it up and we go out there and we're sitting there talking. And he would do this thing with his with his ring. You know, he had these rings on and he had a bottle of Corona. He's he just popped the lid off. Jack would look at him and goes, How you do that? He goes, What this? He goes, Oh, it's easy. He goes, it goes, hurts my fingers. I'll show you how to how to do it. So he goes, We're gonna drink beers. I'm gonna show you guys how to do that, but we're gonna chug these beers. I'm like, 
I was, I hate beer. I cannot, I, it's nasty to me, mm. but I was like, it's Chad Kroger. I'm in Mexico. Yeah. How do you say no? Yeah. I've had a couple of drinks in me. I, I'm, I'm riding high on this show we just played. And so he shows us how to do it. And we chug them. I got like two beers into it. I'm just like, I can't do it, man. So Jack's a beer drinker. It's like me and you now. And I told him, I said, Jack, be careful. This guy's from Canada. He can drink. I said, he's, I mean, if I have to guess, he's like that. He's the Canadian version of, of Ivan Drago. You know, <laughs> it's like, you don't want to mess with this guy. But they, they, they're ha they hammer like 10, 12 beers. And uh, somebody comes up there and they go, uh, or before we, we go downstairs, Sammy starts playing Best of Both Worlds. And I love that song. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there and this girl comes over and he goes, can we take a picture of you guys? I said, sure, sure. So Chad's like, got to put your glasses on. So I, sh I should have sent you that picture. But there's a picture of me, Chad, and Jack with our sunglasses on, on that catwalk, drinking these drinks, and she takes a picture of us. And uh, they're playing best of both worlds. Down there. I was like, this is surreal, man. I'm hanging out with Chad. Just played in Mexico, our first international show. Sammy Hagar, sold-out show. Chugging beers with Chad Kroger. This is fantastic. This girl says, uh, they want to take pictures. Some people downstairs ask if they could take pictures, too. Do you mind coming downstairs? And we said, sure. So we all went down there. And Jack's like, man. My stomach goes, man, those, uh, th th those beers are kind of getting to me. And Chad's like, could it be that you've just, because you just drank like a six pack or a 12 pack in, in like eight minutes? He goes, yeah, maybe that that's what it is. He goes, I, I, I can't do anymore. And Chad's like, I got you. Come here. And he walks over. I swear to God. He walks Jack over by this big garbage can, pushes his head over. He takes his two fingers and jams them in Jack's throat. <laughs> he didn't ask him. He didn't say, hey, this is what I'm going to do. He grabbed him by the back of the head and smiling. He's looking at me. He goes, huh, and just shoves his fingers in Jack's head. He goes, and he, he spews all in this guard. Got all down Chad's arm, all over his hand. I was like, dude. I said, oh, my God. I said, I could not believe it. And Jack's look on his face. He, he raises his head up. There's a little puke all over his face. And he has this bewilderment look like, what the hell just happened? And I was like. And Chad's laughing. He's like slinging the throw up off of his hand. He goes, you feel better now? And Jack's like, yeah, I think I, think I do. <laughs> and he goes, Marco, bartender, two more. And he goes, and he started drinking more. So that that was a pretty cool story. Chad actually spoke about that in a Playboy article the mm. following year because he drank so much that night and he threw up when he got home. It messed up his epiglottis. Mm. And those of you who don't know what an epiglottis is, you can look it up. <laughs> it's a it's the flap that goes over your the top part of your stomach. It messed it up, and he had to have surgery from that night to fix it. So we like we got you in the end, Chad Kroger. <laughs> but um, so fast forward two weeks later, I'm back home, calm down, thumbing through the TV, and the Country Music Awards are on, and it was towards the end of it. I was getting ready to go to bed. I said, "Well, let's just see who the who the I figured Garth Brooks or whatever was, was going to win," and and they were like, "Country Music Artist of the Year goes to." Kenny Chesney. And I was like, oh, cool. And the guy stood up. I was like, oh, that's the dude. That's <laughs> yeah. Kenny. He did look different. Yeah. He had a big black hair. He was shaven. No glasses. No sawed off jean shorts. No, no, no t-shirt. He was in a suit. I was like, holy crap. I was like, that's Kenny. Ch I was hanging out. I looked on my day sheet. And sure enough, he, he had signed my day sheet. I didn't even realize. I didn't even realize. I didn't know who he was. But I was like, wow. Had I known. And then fast forward to next year, he sends us some VIP passes for a stadium tour, and we were backstage with him and all that kind of stuff. I mean, before the show, after the show, we got to sit on the stage while while he was playing. 
And imagine this. You got a whole band full of rock guys. Like we had eyeliner, black hair, look like, look, looking like Green Day um, in the sea full of country people with big belt <laughs> buckles and, you know, frilly shirts and cowboy hats. They saw us like, what in the hell are these people doing here? I was like, ah, where was Kenny? They were like, it was, it was, it was surreal. <laughs> surreal. That was, that was a cool story. Yeah. Mm. And no, I will not tell you the Kentucky story. We'll get back to the Kentucky story maybe later. You can only imagine in Kentucky, right? Uh, I'm curious about the Kentucky story. Yeah, yeah. So, with rock and roll and fame, inevitably, you're going to have some lows. Multiple. Tell me your darkest story about a rock star low. Well... I would say that um, I guess this is before the quote unquote rock star period, right? Um, I was 18 and I had left school and I got accepted to a music college out in California. It's a prestigious music school. So they accepted me. I was like, I got to go. So I left and I went out there. I moved out there, took up all, every dollar I had. And me and my girlfriend at the time and Two of my friends moved out there, so I could. They went. They went with me, so I could go to school. Mm. And um, I get out there, and as I said earlier in the in the podcast, that gave me a really a Mike Tyson right hook to the face. Um, I'm a simple country guy from small town in Georgia. Now I'm in L.A., right at the height of the whole debauchery. You know, this is when Motley Crue was big. You know, I mean. You know, all these these big debaucherous bands that used sex, drugs, rock and roll, that was L.A. at that time. It was it was off the hook, man. And so, you know, I when we moved out there now, my my girlfriend at the time, soon to be wife, not my wife now, but my first wife, she was very we were both very young and she was very, very beautiful, like model beautiful. So the building that I lived in was all band guys because they all went to almost all the, a lot of people that went to that school were in my building. The day, I remember the day I pulled up, she got out of the U-Haul. They were hanging out of the windows like, <gasps> like vultures. And I go, Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Oh man. Mm. Okay. She loves me. She loves me. We're, yeah. we're, we're good. Of course. We're, we're good. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then you get out there and there's no parents. You know, there's no curfew, there's no everything, so we're kind of left to your own devices. Well, you know, you start drinking a little bit, partying a little bit, and um, people get, you know, she gets a lot of attention that she normally would not get. Um, From a small town as well. Yep. And so, um, yeah, pretty soon, the wolves got into the hen house. Mm. And uh, I'm trying to go to school, uh, trying to work a job, and then that happens. So, it... (laughs) I, I was the hopeless romantic type, right? You know, I was the, oh, I love you. I'm going to be with you forever. Um, there's nobody but you. And, all, and, and and I meant it with her. And um, so needless to say, I mean, I, I was, as a young kid, I was 18, 19. That, I, that was a lot of, to put on your plate. And it was a lot of physical, and emotional pain. And so uh, what do you do? You drink a lot because it numbs the pain. Mm. Uh, not the best idea in the world, but then again, I, I will. I'm, I'm, I'm 18. Yeah. What else do you know? 
Yeah. And so we became farther and farther apart. I think she moved in with somebody else. Uh, I think it may have been in the same building. I don't remember, but we would kind of see each other here and there. And and I felt like I, I, I was destroyed, man. And so I drank a lot. I was drank a lot. Like every dollar I had was basically spent on alcohol and cookie dough and ramen noodles. <laughs> and that was my diet, right? I would even drink before I went to class. It was affecting everything in my life. Um, so one day I come home. And it just weighs on me and it's just killing me, man. And so I, you know, one drink leads to another drink, to another drink, to another drink. And I just hurt so bad that I just, I, I wanted to, I didn't want it to be that way. Mm-hmm. So I go, and there again, th- this is alcoholic wisdom. I, I was already drunk by this point. And I don't know why I thought this, but I thought, Hey, maybe if I take a bunch of these sleeping pills and, uh, mm-hmm. not, you know, NyQuil pills and all that kind of stuff, I'll sleep. For a long time, and then when I wake up, I'll feel better. Conventional 18-year-old wisdom, right? So Logic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't, I wasn't in my right head. But anyway, that's what I did. I took a lot of pills and a lot of alcohol. And at that point, I basically kicked my roommates out, except for one of them. And he was out that night. And I was roaming around. I uh, literally, I had passed out in the bathroom. And, you know, pills, vodka, orange juice all over the place. And uh, he came home and found me. He's like, oh, that's cute. Look, I drank too much. And so he picked me up and kind of put me in, in the bed. And it startled me. You know, I, I, I kind of came to a little bit. And I was like, all I could think about was where she was. And I figured she was down at, at my buddy's apartment. There's a bunch of guys down there. You know, they, were, they knew she was at that point where, she, you know, she would do just about anything. And so they're all, you know, mm-hmm. that whole thing. So I got up and I managed to kind of stumble down to the apartment and I opened the door and I walked in and there she was with all the, all these guys. I was sitting around watching TV or whatever, but that took my last bit of energy and I just like, boom, and I face planted. They, um, and it's weird because I could hear and I knew where I was. I knew what was going on, but I couldn't really move or talk. I was like, it was almost like a drunken paralysis sort of. And, um, so they're like, ha ha, Scott, very, very, very funny. Get out of here, dude. And they said, Scott, get out of here. He goes, she don't want you here. And I was like, and I, I could hear all this, but I, I couldn't do anything about it. And a guy walked over finally after a few minutes and was like, dude, I don't, I don't think he's kidding. I said, I think there's something wrong with him. And I was like, no, just, just get him out of here. Like, put, like, put, put him in, in, in the hall. He's like, no, I'm, I'm serious. Dude. I, I, I think there's something wrong. And I felt him trying to wake me up and, and they opened up my eyes. He goes, dude, he don't, he don't look right. Um, we got to do something like now. And so finally they called the cops and well, the ambulance came, the paramedics came and now you have this scene, right? It pulls up to the front of the apartment building. Everybody's out in the street looking, um, the paramedic, I feel all these people come in the room and, uh, there's cops. You hear the radios going off and all that stuff. And the paramedics say, move everybody out of the way They get people out of the room and, and, I feel him pinching me on my, on my, on my shot. I can feel it and it hurts, but I don't, I'm not moving. And so he goes, yeah, we need to transport him. Um, this is serious. And I was like, that's good. And so they started asking me, what you know, who, who, who's out there with. And Chris is like, he came there for me. We moved out here to get, and he kind of gave him the whole backstory. Well, the next thing, you know, they got me strapped to this gurney and uh, I'm strapped down and I go, um, they pick me up, carry me down the elevator out. And there's people in the street looking, 
I can kind of see them out of the corner of, of my eye and I see the lights going. And, um, and so they put me in the back of the ambulance and they tell her where I'm going. They took me to Cedar Sinai medical, medical center and, uh, they forced me to sit up and they said, Scott, you got to drink this. You got to drink this. And I, I, I couldn't speak. And they forced the stuff down my throat called Epicac. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what that is or not, but that, that forces you to, to throw up because they said, so, uh, you know, I guess my roommate had come down there and said, we well, took some pills. And so they, I think they had an idea of what was wrong, but they didn't know. And I got to, I got to Cedar Sinai Medical Center. They wheeled me in there. Now that, I think this is a Saturday night. Just take a stab at what an emergency room is like in Cedar Sinai Medical Center in Hollywood, California on a Saturday night. Mm. Just guess. <laughs> it is unlike anything you've ever seen in your life. And uh, like I said, there again, I, I, I'm kind of in and out, but I, I can hear what's going on and I'm, I'm aware, but I just, I'm, I'm not coherent anyway so they they forced me to throw the stuff up and 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 i'm sitting there they got all these heart monitors and tubes and ivs and whatnot in me and then next thing you know just lights go out Mm. and when the lights come back on it's uh it's the next morning and a nurse comes in and she sees me the little monitor goes off that says that i'm awake and she comes in there and um and she uh she goes mr sellers i said Yes, ma'am. She goes, doctor, be right in to see. The doctor came in. Only it wasn't a medical doctor. It was a mm. shrink doctor. And he asked me, he said, uh, so you want to talk to me a little bit about why you tried to kill yourself? I said, what? <laughs> I said, I didn't try to kill myself. And he goes, no, no, no. I mean, be honest. I was like, I didn't try to kill myself. I said, what are you talking about? I said, I, I just drank too much. He goes, no, 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 no. Listen to me. He goes, you had about 40 or 50 pills, foreign pills in your stomach with a <laughs> enough alcohol to float a battleship. If your friends had not called me or called the paramedics and you would have just been there and you would have been dead in 45 minutes. He goes, you had about 45 minutes left to live. This would have killed you. And in my whole world was, like, I was like, whoa. I was like, wow. That's how. These people are like, my God's a dumbass. You go. I was 45 minutes away from that being me because of a girl and because of my own immaturity and stupidity. So, you know, at, from that point on, you know, when they discharged me the next day, she wasn't there. And so, but all, all I could think about was how, you know, how disappointed my mother would have been mm. if I had died and my family and, and my sister and my grandparents and my friends. You know, I'm 18 years old. I'm out in California. And I was like that far from fucking everything up forever. There, there would have been no, this, there'd have been no anything. There'd have been no band. There'd have been no, no, my life would have been over 18 years. And I'm just like, I mean, my mother's shame or sorrow or disappointment. And so that's one of the things that I, it, it's, I always say life happens for us, not to us. This was a very painful yet very, very good learning lesson for me. And I realized at that point, man, everything I want to do from that point on would be so that I could make people proud around me, mm. whether it be my mom or my family, my parents, my, my relatives, my friends, my wife, whatever. And, um, and I also knew at that point that it's, I cannot, and this may sound selfish and, and, you know, people can agree or disagree, but this is just me. 
I cannot live my life for someone else. Mm -hmm. It has to be about me. Like Terrell Owens says, I love this phrase. He goes, I love me some me. (laughs) And I got a lot more selfish, I guess, at that point, because this is my life. I mean, you know, people are going to come and go in your life, good and bad, but I will be with me till the day I die, whether I be a hundred or whether it be tomorrow. I'm with me forever. So I got to make me happy. I've got to take care of me. I don't want to rely on somebody else for my happiness. I have to be happy with who I am, how I do things, and and the people I have in my life. And if people are toxic, that's when I said, you got to get them out of your life. I, I don't care if it's your family. I don't care if it's your brother, if it's your wife. Sorry, wives, but it's true. Nobody wants toxic people in their life. And having those toxic people in my life in that toxic environment and my own immaturity and bad decision-making almost cost me my life. And so that's why, I mean, even to this day, like when I met my wife now, I, I, I told her straight up, I said, our first date, I said, this is going to be a lot, but I'm in a rock band. That's what I want to do. I'm gone a lot. Yes, there's girls around, but if I tell you I love you, it means I love you. And I said, I will not live my life for any other human being ever. Mm-hmm. But I can live my life with you. I can create value for you just like you can create value for me. I can live our lives together. We can share things. But I will not live my life 100% for anyone anyone else ever. Mm. And that's what that taught me. And so I guess the two big biggest lessons are don't live your life for someone else. You can live it with somebody else. And this is just me. I know, and, and there's, I love my parents. I love my friends. I love my wife and I do, I, I would do anything for them. But at the end of the day, if I'm not happy with myself and the person that I am, how can I be of value to them? And then the other thing was, is I always, always, always want to try to make those people around me proud mm-hmm. because I know how I had what was going to happen that night happen my mom would have lived the rest of her, her life with just this massive disappointment in her son, you know? And so that's, those are the, that's probably my, my lowest moment. And I will tell you, that's one of the reasons why I never really got into drugs. I did drink a lot, but I always, except for a handful of times, probably I always knew when to say, all right, that's good. Mm. That's good. And even to this day, I mean, even if I drink now, I just have a glass of wine, hang out on on the couch, or I, it's it's just more social. It's more kind of I, I don't get I don't drink to, you know, I don't do that anymore. Just because I feel like I've dodged a lot of bullets, that being the biggest one, and it it I'm glad it happened to me that early in life because it definitely set a precedent um, of always being aware that that could happen, and I was always worried about that, you know. And so now that I've kind of navigated all of those minefields, I feel privileged to still be here, you know? And so, you know, I would say that, that was my story. And those are the two lessons that I learned from it. That's, um, that's deep. Yeah. The, you started that story by saying that you wanted just to go to sleep and hopefully wake up with the pain gone. Yep. And when you met with the psychiatrist at the hospital, he assumed that you tried to commit suicide. I felt bad for that. Looking back with having a little more reflection now, do you think you were actually trying to do it? Sober me? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Um, Drunk me? 
can make some bad decisions. And, and the reality is framed in a little bit of a different context, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the drunk hurt me. Maybe he, maybe he was, but the cognitive like present person, absolutely not, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a good question. Um, in the moment. Yeah. You know, who are you really in that moment when you make that decision is kind of a really complex question, I guess. Yeah. And sometimes I don't think people realize that decisions that you make now, I mean, can alter tra- the trajectory of your entire life. Like me getting up off the couch that night to go down to the tent, mm-hmm. change my life. What happened to me on that night, um, at Cedar Sinai medical center changed my life. Um, from an educational standpoint, like I said, I was a horrible student, but there was a moment uh, when I think I was in 11th or 12th grade with one of my English lit lit teachers, something she said to me, a moment that happened in class, it changed my life. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I was a bad student. I always joke, you know, when you see people's GPAs, mm-hmm. has like a 3.41 or a 2.1, like I always joke and say, you know, mine didn't have a number before the point. It was just <laughs> point six, whatever it was. And, um, you know, so I was not a good student. I mean, I, I did good at times. It depends on who the teacher was and what, what the subject was and, you know, how distracting or how disruptive the class was. I always, when I was in military school, I had much smaller classes, much more discipline, forced discipline, and I made A's and B's. But in public school, it was not like that at all. Mm-hmm. But I was in my English lit class. I think I had an F in the class at the time. And uh, as you may have guessed, I was the chatty one mm-hmm. in the class, and I was the class clown, and I was trying to flirt with girls and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, I remember that everybody was up talking before class, and I was talking to this girl and, um, you know, trying to trying to make her laugh and all that stuff. And I remember her name was Miss Ann Shelton. Uh, and she came in, a little short lady, uh, you know, dark hair, like liquid black eyeliner, you know, short lady. And uh, she walks in, and goes, class, sit down, grab your seats, grab your seats, and well, of course, most people did, except me. I was into this girl. I was like, hey, baby, what's going on? And I was like, ah, I was trying to do something to make her laugh. And she was. So I was eating it up. I'm not about to sit down. I'm, I'm on a roll here, you know? And she goes, class, sit down. And then finally, I was one of the last ones standing up chatting. She goes, Scott, come here. And everybody's like, ooh. And I was like, oh, I'm in trouble now. She goes, come up here right now. Come up in front of the class. I was like, all right. So I go up there. And she goes, you're so smart. You know, want to talk? He goes, how about telling us what the definition of knowledge is? It's like, I don't know, being smart, knowing stuff. And she goes, I was like, oh, I was like, "Eh," you know, and it's like, she goes, no, give me the definition of knowledge. I said, being really smart, uh, knowing a lot of things. And she goes, and she marched up to me. She grabbed me by my chin because I got a big chin. And she, she goes, come here. And she got right in my face. She goes, listen to me. Because knowledge gives you the power to control your own life. Without it, she goes, somebody else is going to control your life for you. Do you want somebody else controlling your life for you? Huh? And I go, hmm. It was one of those moments again. I was like, no, ma'am. She goes, well, sit down. I said, okay. And I, and I started thinking about it. And I started looking for examples of where other people were controlled by where their lives were controlled for them. Mm -hmm. And so then you start noticing as I would drive around, you know, you see different people out out on the roads driving and stuff. So, you know, I'm I like cars just like you do too. And so I would, 
I'd pick out somebody who had like these really junky, crappy cars. Like, you know, the, the window has like the back windows bust out. It's got like a garbage bag taped up on it. There's smoke coming out of it. And there's this dirty raggedy guy smoking cigarettes, you know, driving with his name tag on it, on his shirt. And I'm looking at him at the slide. I'm going, that guy has to go to work. Mm. He has to, he's controlled because of his lack of money. Mm. Doesn't look like he's very smart. He doesn't look like he has knowledge. And then you pull up to a light and you see a guy in like a Porsche or, or something with a suit, windows down. He's like kicking it with his shades. And I was like, now that guy, that guy's got the world by the balls. I said, I like that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and you look at him and you say, I bet, I bet that guy's smart, man. You'd have to know a bunch of stuff to afford a Porsche, right? Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay. Then I started asking, well, which do I want to be? If I keep going down the road of making Fs, probably going to be that guy. But if I get my act together and maybe I become smart and I can do well in school, maybe I can be like that guy. I said, who do you want to be? I said, well, I want to be that guy. Of course. Who don't? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, I want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. I want to be the guy in, in, in the old beat up, you know, 25 year old Mazda with smoke coming out of the back of it, going to a job that I get paid by the hour for that I hate just to pay the bills. So, um, that moment changed my life, man. And it, it I didn't, it's almost like a, a knowledge grenade. Um, imagine like you have this knowledge, right? And it's this grenade and then you pull the pin and you throw it and you wait. And it's just like, nothing happened. Then all of a sudden one day, boom, Oh, and that day came really hit me, hit me when I started my business or I was forced to start my, my business. Everything she told me, everything she said, those two guys in the two diff- different cars all came back to me. I said, now is the time where you got to put up or shut up because now you can, you can go either way mm-hmm. at that point. Molly, you can either be that guy or you can be that guy. Knowledge and work is going to determine which one of those guys you become. It's up to you now. There's no more mama. There's no more excuse about the band. There's no more excuse about this. It's just figure shit out. Are you going to do it or not? So. So we fast forward. 2018-ish. That's approximately when we first met. Is it? I think so. About four years ago. What do you think? Four or five years ago. We'll go with that. In that time. We'll go with that, yeah. Um, since then, I know you as a successful CEO and entrepreneur. Um, you have a growing, successful business. And you recently, over that time, you've got into endurance, ra- endurance racing. We mm-hmm. touched on a little bit earlier and Ironman events. How do you think the physical training pushes you in your regular life? Well, see, now I'm, I'm back to trying to kill myself again. <laughs> I'm just doing it in, in a different way. And I'm very cognizant of the fact that I'm trying to do that now. So if, if, the, if the shrink comes in or a shrink is listening to this, there he goes again. He's <laughs> trying, trying to, to do it. it. He's trying to do it a different way. Um, I think that uh, doing those, those things, um, it's not for everybody. But to me, the reason why I personally enjoy it is because it forces you to be uncomfortable. It, it's an exercise in goal setting. It's an exercise in uh, work ethic. It's an exercise in, in team building because you need those things as well. It's an exercise in how you prepare because if you're not prepared, you're, you're going to fail. And I, I think these, anytime I'm preparing for an Ironman or, 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 or an endurance race or whatever it is, um, 
all the lessons and all the, the principles and things that you need to be successful at that are the same principles that you need to be successful in business. Um, neither are easy. Both are, are, both are hard in their own ways. Um, so that's why I do it. It's because I, I'm a believer. I'm a staunch believer in, in, in being uncomfortable mm. or doing hard, difficult things. Our world, this this day and age, everything is built for comfort, right? You have heated seats, you have heated steering wheels, you know, uh, people come to you, you don't have to get out and go get things anymore, you don't have to go read, you know, uh, you don't have to go to the library, everything's on your phone, everything comes to you, you know, you've got grown men sitting in their parents' basements eating McDonald's and playing video games and just wasting their, their lives away, but because it's comfortable, it's easy. Let's get out and walk for a few miles. I'm not doing that. It's hot outside. I'm going to stay here in the air conditioner. You get a lot of that, right? I'm just the opposite. If something's hard or it's difficult, I want to tackle it because I know that when I figure it out and I go through that whole process, it's going to make me better. I got news for you, man. Life is hard. Things are going to get difficult, whether you want it to or not. You know, you can't hide from difficulty. It will find you. And it's, it's how you prepare for when that difficulty shows up that makes all the difference is whether you succeed or, or you fail. So for me, that's why I do these races because I, I'm super competitive. And one, I think your health is everything. If you, I mean, what good is having a yacht or a plane or, or a hundred million dollar year business? Uh, if you don't live long enough to enjoy it or you don't have the quality of life, mobility, movement, um, you know, you have young kids now and, and I'm, I'm not saying go out and run a race and this is what's, what's going to happen, but you have people that are dropping dead at a young age mm. for just weird reasons. I mean, uh, unfortunately I'm sad to say, like I found out last night, Lisa Marie Presley died. I was a yeah. huge Elvis fan. And yeah. so that and she was young. She's 52 yeah. or she's 53. Yeah. I think she early, she's, she's around my age. And so when you see somebody your age pass away, just boom like that. I and mean, she was at the golden globes on Tuesday. Yeah. She's gone. Yeah. Now I can't tell you it's because her, it could have been something she took. It could have been an underlying uh, uh, condition. Yeah, I've, I, 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 I can't tell you that. But all I know is that I want to be in, in physical shape. And if I can take and set a hard goal, and I, you know, the things that I do in order to attain that goal are going to help my 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 uh, my health, and my mental state, and my physical abilities. That's what I want to do because. It's like I was saying earlier, you know, when you have a big problem in an Ironman, like when you start, if you have a problem in the water, you have to stop, fix the problem. And then you keep going. You don't say, oh, I got, I got 140 miles to go. I'm never going to, going to make it. If you think of it that way, you, you probably won't. It's, it's too much weight on you. You got to say, all I got to do is get out of the water. How do I do that? Well, in my case, I flipped over. I fixed what I had. I fixed my head. I got my heart rate down. And and, and you, you fix these problems piece by piece by piece by piece. And um, those are great lessons for business and in life, you know. And so that's uh, that's one of the reasons why I do them, because it's good practice for when things, you know, hit the fan in business as well. So you're known to have strong opinions on business and politics. Who doesn't? We get on a call every once in a while and we go deep into politics, into uh, direction of the world, direction of the country, direction of society. These are things that we like to throw thought experiments at each other on. I will say that's one thing that I like 
because when you and I would get on phone calls, mm-hmm. um, it'd just be just, I'm, I'm just calling just, hey, buddy, what's going on? Next thing you know, we're on this conversation and it's like an hour. And I was Deep like, in the rabbit hole. I was like, that would be a great <laughs> podcast. You know, that would. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you some questions. Sure. But let's take a break, give it five. And I think I'm going to make that part two. <laughs> 